0: We announced we're looking at what to do when you've had people in the past who have come against you one way or another. It may have been something over school, the neighborhood, church, even principles of God, something that you stand for. They may have caused you to lose friends, negatively affected something involving your children, your work, your work at church, persecuted for your beliefs whatever it might be. What do you do when someone like that wants to suddenly become your friend and acts friendly towards you? Do we have a Christian responsibility to accept their repentance? Do we have a responsibility to accept them back as a friend? What are the guidelines here? Because for the most part, as I observe Christians, we feel like, well, if they make a effort to come out to me, I have to accept that even though our insides are telling us no. So let's take a look at the the biblical example because Nehemiah is in exactly that position here. And we want to see what it is that he did and what we can learn from him there. Last week we were looking at what to do when you get angry. Not for things that were just done against us, but things that may have been done against others, done against God, but even so that worked for things done against us. Spent a lot of of time on that. Just uh, in the end, we looked at, first off, the, you need to have right thoughts. Make sure you take time to get your spirit in line with God. As Nehemiah did not speak right away out of his feelings, out of his anger, he got things right with God, God, God's thoughts on the thing. Then he made sure his response was right. He let the Word formulate his response, not his emotions, and not his righteous indignation. And then he had the right confrontation. He was bold, but he was loving. And he got things done. Sometimes we err on the side of not being loving. We're harsh. Or we err on the side of not being bold and not saying all that needs to be said. So we need to make sure that we are bold and that we are loving. Let's go on here and take a look at Nehemiah chapter 6, reading from verse 1. Now it happened when Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem, the Arab, and the rest of our enemies heard that I had rebuilt the wall and That there were no breaks left in it, though at the time I had not hung the doors in the gates. So that would mean that the gates are built, but the doors and the doors are probably built, but they haven't been hung up yet. That would be the last stage of those of that process. That Sanballat and Geshem sent to me, saying, "Come, let us meet together among the villages in the plain of Ono," but they thought to do me harm. Now, he tacks this on here at the end, they thought to do me harm, but I don't know that he knows that at this time. It would seem that he comes to that knowledge later, just from the way that the passage unfolds. But since he's readiness after the fact, he lets us know that this was their intent, though they did not divulge such a thing. Now, the motivation, we're told, behind the request to meet was because the wall was complete and the doors were just about to be hung. So despite the opposition that they had mounted against this, they were unsuccessful. So it seems like they are looking for a different tactic, some other different way to come against this. So because they, they were, they had failed in the way they're going. All right. We got to try and do something different. So now they're coming there and they're trying to be friendly. We've been on the wrong side of this. Let's try and get on the right side and see if we can undo this from another way. But they do wait before the, Everything is finished, so the doors aren't hung yet. Perhaps if they waited until everything was finished, their request would have been a little bit more suspicious. Now, not everyone who speaks of their good intentions actually has them. That is something we have to keep in mind. And it's in the Bible. It's right here, Nehemiah chapter 6. It's telling us. Not everybody that says they have good intentions actually has them. We see that in the New Testament. How many people said they had good intentions with Jesus, but they didn't actually have them? Pharisees, Sadducees, they would represent themselves as having good intentions, but they did not actually have them. It is not unchristian to look at people who have suddenly made a change of heart and say they now have good intentions towards you to think maybe they're lying. That is not unchristian to do. There are examples of this In the, in the Bible and be uh, more so than the ones I have already told you. But not everyone who has good intentions actually has them. So they, they say here, hey, let's come together and let's meet. Now here's what's missing for Nehemiah. I want you to note the things that are missing for Nehemiah because many times they are missing for Christians. We have somebody who comes to us. They say, hey, we want to, uh, we want to be friends now in their request, there's something that's missing. First off that's missing is, what is the motivation for Nehemiah to meet them? He doesn't need them. They haven't been instrumental in getting the project done. They're not a help in this. What is the motivation? And that's a question we have to ask ourselves, too. When someone who has been an enemy wants to be a friend, what is the motivation? A lot of times, we are sold the bill of goods that the motivation is that maybe they will get saved. We are sold on that an awful lot. And I don't know that that's necessarily the, the motivation that we should be moved on. We'll see more of this as we're going on through. So what is the motivation to meet? What is the benefit for Nehemiah? It cannot be just one-sided. We've talked about this before in other aspects of things, but you cannot have relationships that are one-sided last long. They will get worn out. There needs to be some kind of give and take. It does not have to be equal, but there needs to be some kind of give and take. Something has to to come from that. Uh, Even if you have a a relationship with a, a young child and you're just mentoring them, helping them along the way on things, uh, you don't expect anything of necessarily of, of value like you are putting into them, but you have to give them opportunity to sew things and to do things there needs to be that opportunity sometimes're a little kid you know they draw you a picture and uh, you know when we, when the, our grandkids were growing up Lissy was the big one for pictures she loved drawing i've got a box full of pictures from Lissy because we would say I would save them and I put them in a box and make sure that they would stay safe that way. And the box is is pretty full. She was over at our house. We had some time, and she um, somehow we got onto that and said, "Oh, I got a whole box full of those." And so I brought the box out, and she went through them all and checked them all out because she had a lot. And then she drew things on my phone, and I have all those things that she drew on my phone. Chenzo, he wasn't in the draw. I don't have the 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 big stack of things from from Chenzo. Lumi just got into it. She just uh, a couple of weeks ago she decided to draw me a picture. That uh, was for my office, so I made sure to put it up there, and send send her a picture today of it all, all being up there in the office. But you know, th- those things they mean a lot. It's something that they did. There's a, a when you ha- when you have a relationship, there needs to be there needs to be two. If there's not two sides, if there's if there's not a give and take, then it's not a healthy relationship. Again, it doesn't have to be equal with God. We have a relationship there, but there's give and take. There's things that we do. We worship Him. We obey Him. We serve Him. We do these things to Him. It's nothing like what He did to us. It's not equal. But there is an expectation of something going on on both sides. So look for that in, in these things. If you have a relationship and it's constantly being one-sided, uh, it's just a drain for you. It's just something that the enemy seems to have plugged into your life. And it's just to pull things out. And, and you just don't need to have that going on anymore. So what is the motivation to meet? What is the benefit for Nehemiah? Can't just have a one-sided thing. If these things can't be stated, there is likely a concealed reason. If there is no way that the person that you're trying to make amends with, they're trying to make amends with you, if they can't state the motivation to meet, if they can't state the benefit then more than likely, there is something going on that cannot be revealed. You're going to have enemies, you're going to have people that were against you before, whether they were former enemies or current enemies, and they want to change their status with you. Make sure it's not a one-sided arrangement. If they're not willing to give anything, they should not gain anything either. That's a biblical principle. No sowing, no reaping. If there's no willingness to pay or to give, it means that they give the thing no value. If they're not willing to pay or to give anything to come back and and actually be your friend, if there's no give from their side, more than likely they see no value in it. They may speak about value in it, but you need to show that there's some value in it. Now, sometimes God will tell you to go and sow with no promise of a return. And when he does that, you do it. Because God said, remember uh, Peter, when he's up there on the roof, and God said, men are coming from Jopa, go with them. Well, he has no, nothing on there, there's no motivation for him to go, no reason for him to go, no benefit for him, but God said, go. So, he goes. If God tells you to go and do something, and it's a one-sided thing, trust God. It's all right. If God said to go, it is all right to do this. If God did not say to go, that may speak something to you. If Peter's up there on the roof and God does not say to go and these men knock on the door and they say, hey, come with us, what kind of response do you think you're getting from Peter? More than likely, Peter is saying no. In fact, when you listen to Peter when he gets over to Joppa, you probably get the idea that Peter wouldn't have gone if God didn't tell him to go. So what God says in these situations is not what people want. If God told you to go, Give what God told you to give. Sow what God told you to sow. Say what God told you to say. Don't do what the people want. Do what God sent you there to do. Now, people with wrong hearts want to receive everything and give nothing. Right off the bat, that'll tell you they have a wrong heart. They want to receive everything and give nothing. Or they want nothing to be expected of them. What do you mean? You're going to expect me to do this? Oh, no. That's a wrong heart. People with right hearts offer what they have And are willing to do what they can. Remember when Elijah was sent to the widow woman? He required something of her. And she was willing to get it. She had a right heart. God knew she had a right heart. God had told her. God had sent Elijah. Elijah went. But before anything is going to happen, here's something we need from you. And so she did that. Don't be afraid to ask for these things. You're going to understand this more as we go along. Let's keep on going. Verse 3. So I sent messengers to them, saying, I am doing a great work so that I cannot come down. Why should the work cease while I leave it and go down to you? But they sent me this message four times, and I answered them in the same manner. whole lot in these two verses. Now me Nehemiah is saying, What you ask me will cost me something. And I see no value to receive in return. And he's he's saying that? If I go down to you, the work stops. That's a great cost to me. Why should I go down to you, a great cost to me, to do something that there's no benefit for me? Why should the work cease while I leave it and go to you? So that basically what he is telling them here is, I can't because I'm busy kind of a vague answer, isn't it? Then that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that answer. Now they asked, they sent this message four times. I don't know if this is four days in a row. Every couple of hours they sent it. If they sent it uh, every couple, of, I don't know how often the the space of time was in between. I can't imagine there would be a whole lot because it was only 52 days until the whole wall was was finished. But anyway, he sent the same answer each time. Despite they keep asking the same question, he answers them the same way. If you've ever been in a situation where somebody who hurt you, somebody who was an enemy to you, somebody who stood in the way or messed up relationships and now wants to come back and says, hey, we want to be friends, and they ask something of you, have you ever had them ask it again if you told them negatively that you wouldn't do it? Hey, can you help me do this? And you said, no, I really can't. And they come and they ask you again. And then they come and they ask you again. And then they come and they ask you again. He had it happen four times. I'll bet most times that we've had that happen, it may not have been four times that we saw that repeat question. But it got to me thinking about the repeat question. When you repeat a question... Over and over. If you ask a question. And you receive an answer. And you ask the question again. You're saying something. You're saying, first off, your answer was insufficient. I deserve to know more than you told me. You shortchanged them. Maybe they just want to know more. Or, maybe if I ask again, I will get... A different answer. Understand this. If you change your answer. You give credibility to their notion. That you. Didn't answer truthfully. Entirely. Or sufficiently. And Nehemiah. Does not bite. He gives them exactly. The same answer. Each time. That's hard to do. But. But. There's a benefit in doing it. It is not ungodly. It is not unchristian. Nehemiah does this. Nehemiah is one of the most respected Jews in the history of the Jewish nation. As we told you before, we're going through Ezra. Ezra is the one who had the longevity of respect. Nehemiah actually rose to a higher place of respect for a shorter period of time, but actually rose above the level of Ezra for for a time. But Ezra does have that long-standing place in, in history with him. Here's why it paid for him not to change his answer and it will do the same thing for you. Have an answer. Give the answer and stick with it. First off, when you, when you get an answer, go to God. God, how shall I answer this? Make sure that you have that answer formulated with the principles that God has given you. God's going to say, say this to them. Once you have that, do not change it. Keep saying the same thing. Wasn't that kind of rude? No. They're asking you the exact same question. How's that not rude? Come on, let's get together and meet. Now to put that in, in modern day terms, say that somebody that's been an enemy for you, somebody at work, somebody who stood in the way at work, somebody who has sabotaged some of your projects, and they say, You look, I, I don't like how things are between us. Can we meet together for lunch? And you tell them something along the time, my schedule is too busy right now. It is not going to accommodate the lunch. That's your answer. They're thinking, that's not the real answer. So they come and ask you again, can we get together for lunch? You need to keep staying with the same answer. Don't change it. If that's the answer that God gave you, if that's the answer that you feel comfortable with in in, uh, your time in spending time with God to get that answer, stay with it. Do not change the answer. And there's a good reason why you don't change the answer. Because if you change the answer... Well, there's going to be a problem. But let's take a look. Nehemiah does not change the answer for four times. Verse 5, Then Sanballat sent his servant to me as before the fifth time. Five times now. But it changed with an open letter in his hand. In it was written, It's reported among the nations that Geshem says that you and the Jews plan to rebel. Therefore, according to these rumors, you are rebuilding the wall that you may be their king. And you have also appointed prophets to proclaim concerning you at Jerusalem, saying, There is a king in Judah. Now these matters will be reported to the king. So come, therefore, and let us consult together. Now they're saying it this way. If you do not come and meet with us, we are going to do you harm. We are going to send this letter to the king. Well, see, this is what I want you to see in this. Because he answers the same way four times and doesn't change his answer, it forces them to change their question. And they changed their question. When they changed, it exposed their motives. If you changed to them, it would expose something in you. You see, you may be suspicious of their Interest in changing the status of your relationship. And you may go to God and say, God, should I, do I have reason to be suspicious? And God may be saying, yeah, you do. But that's not necessarily something that you need to reveal to them. So come up with an answer and stay with that answer. Just because people ask you a question does not mean they deserve an answer. They, they, they don't. They have not been a person in your life that has helped you, mentored you, moved you through. They've been in opposition. And now they they expect they have a right to have... No, 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 no. People did this with Jesus. They expected we have a right to know where your power comes from. Tell us. Jesus says, no, you don't have a right to know. Let's see if you do have a right. Let's see if you qualify. And he gives them the question. Where did John's power come from? Where did his authority come from? Uh We don't know. All right, well, I'm not going to answer you either. See, just because people ask you a question does not mean they need to have the right answer. Jeremiah was approached by the king or by, the, by uh, some of the leaders in the kingdom. Why did the king meet with you? And the king had asked them, please don't tell him why I met with you. And so he did not tell him. Why? Well, why? Was God saying it's okay to lie? No, those people are not worthy of the truth in that situation because they're going to take the truth and they're going to abuse it. We're taught in the New Testament, don't cast your pearls before swine. Don't take something that is valuable and give it to those who don't see it as valuable. Make sure you understand. You, you, you don't have to. Stay with the answer that you got. I don't need to give them anything more. I gave you a truthful answer. I don't have time to meet with you. I am not taking my time that is being put into the wall to the project that God gave me to come and spend time with you. I'm not doing it. That is the answer. There is nothing wrong about that. There is nothing unright about that answer. The answer is correct. Don't move off of it. If you feel from God to say, I appreciate you wanting to have lunch with me. I don't have room in my schedule for more friends. If you feel that that's, you can be that strong, then be that strong. But only do it if God tells you to. Get with God and find out. God, how should I be answering this person? What should I do? God will give you amazing wisdom and amazing uh, ways to answer, just like he did here with this one. God gave him an answer. He gave this answer out and it exposed who they were. So this is what they say. Here's the letter. This is what we're going to do. Now, there, these are heathen people. They have likely used the method that they describe here in the past. They probably have prophets for their heathen gods. And they have probably used this method of having the prophets proclaim things about what it is that they're planning. Just like he said in verse 7. And you have also appointed prophets to proclaim concerning you at Jerusalem. Saying, there is a king in Judah. So we already know you got prophets lined up. And as soon as you get to the situation, right? Those prophets are going to come out and they're going to say that Nehemiah is king and the people are going to accept it. You've got all this planned out. Nehemiah is not doing any of this. He knows it. But by not changing his answer, the change came on their part and it revealed their concealed agenda. It is amazing, but evil intent will reveal itself if you give it the opportunity. Just give it the opportunity. It will reveal itself. It's amazing what evil will tell on itself about. And here they did it. They just let everybody know we we have no good intent with you at all. We still have just as evil intent as we had before. Nothing has changed on our part and we're going to make up all this stuff and send it on to the king. You see that this accusation is right in line with all the things they have shown themselves to be. Their attempts to help were merely to mask the destruction that they intended. So, come and meet with us on the basis of what we asked or we will carry out this threat. You know, you could have that person it'd be like if that person said, come on, have, let's have lunch. Let's uh, sweep things under the carpet. You say, no, 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 no. And then they finally send you, look, if you don't have lunch with me, if you don't meet with me, then I am going to tell the boss that you're doing this, 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 and this. That's the situation in the in. Now we know this issue is not the truth. That there is no truth behind the accusations. But the issue is not whether this accusation is true. The issue is will the king believe them? That's all that matters. doesn't matter if it's true or false. Will the king believe them? Put this in your outline for you. If we allow fear to motivate us to trust or allow someone back in our lives, how can the God of love be the inspiration? If we allow fear to motivate us to trust or allow someone back in our lives, how can the God of love be the inspiration? Because fear is the opposite of love. Perfect love casts out all fear. We have the God of love. He's not, being, he's not using fear to motivate us to do what He wants to, to be done. God is all about restoration for the fallen. Teamwork against the enemies of destruction. Putting me with someone who will make me better. This is what God's about. God will work these things. God likes restoration for the fallen, but He wants restoration. He doesn't want people being put back into a place where they can do you harm. There are people out there and they are seeking true friendship. Friendship. But when they do, people who seek true friendship understand that trust is built. And they want to build it with you and to have you build it with them. They want that. They want it to be built. People who just want to move people who just want to get you to move by fear. They don't have time for building. They just want to move you. They just want to move you off of whatever it is you're on. Get you out of whatever it is you're You're in. We got to move you. They don't have time to build anything, and eventually their speech will betray them, just like it did here. Let's go on. Verse eight. Then I sent to him, saying, "No such thing as you say are being done, but you invent them all with your own heart." He knows that because he knows what's going on in the city. For they all were trying to make us afraid saying their hands will be weakened in the work and it will not be done. So they're still trying to get fear to come in here. But it's not working this way. Then he prays. I like the prayer. Now therefore, O God, strengthen my hands. The goal of the enemies here is weakness. They want Nehemiah to be weak in the work. So his prayer is for strength for the task. He does not pray for strength against them. He prays for strength for the task. If you let the enemy become your focal point, then you are letting the enemy set your agenda. We do not need to pray, Oh God, help me to be strong against this one. No. What is it that God has called you to do? What is it that your assignment is? What is it that God is leading you to do? God, I need strength to get that done because there's people trying to pull me off of that. Look for the strength. God, I need strength for the task. Don't be praying. God, help me against the enemy because you're switching your focal point to the enemy and stopping the enemy. Your focal point is doing what God said. If the enemy can get you off of looking at what God told you to do and look at the enemy, he will win. It may take a little more time that way, but he will win. Don't be focused on the enemy. Focused on what God has told you to do. If it's just, if it's at your job, when you get to, when you took that job, you do everything as to the Lord. God, why am I here? What is my purpose for being here? And then you make sure you accomplish that purpose. Now your purpose is the job they hired you for, but God has a purpose for you there. God, why do you want me to be here? What kind of influence do you want me to have on here? What kind of things do you want me to be able to do? What kind of things can this job help me in my areas of growth as well? There's things for for that. So make sure you keep your eye on what God wants you to do. Don't get it off on the enemy. Oh God, make me strong against these attacks that come. That's how a lot of Christians pray. They're wasting their time. They've the enemy's already succeeded because he's got you off the goal. Don't be doing that. Be praying in this. You know, people that are in ministry say you're in ministry and you're you're preaching against certain things. The guy we just listened to, I put up there on Monday. Say that Pastor Tim's up there in New York and he's standing for all these principles and then the uh, uh, government comes down upon him. Oh God, give me strength against this government. Give me strength against this thing. Give me strength. No. Stay with what God has told you to do. God, help me to keep seeing the truth of your word. Help me to keep seeing what it is that you want me to proclaim. Help me to Stay with what God wants you to do. Don't get your eyes on the enemy. That's what he wants you to do. He wants you to get your eyes on the enemy. Because if he can, he can build up fear. All right, so we got past those guys, and that's not it. We're not done. He said, afterward, verse 10, I came to the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, the son of Mehetabel, who was a secret informer, and he said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple and let us close the doors of the temple for they are coming to kill you. Indeed, at night they will come to kill you. Now if you look at that word secret informer. There are a lot of translations out there who do not translate this secret informer. They treat it, they, they translate it as shut up or confined to his home. And I mean, well known translation, the amplified does it this way. Uh, the New Living Translation, I know, does it this way. Several other translations that I looked at will have this in. I was amazed at how many of them do. So it caused me to wonder about this word. Well, this is a more of a, a, a hidden meaning or a, a non-used meaning, the secret informer. It is more often in the place where it is confined to home and so forth. But because of how this thing plays out, I think the translators took this word and looked at the context of the translators of the New King James and the translators of the King James. Those are the main translations that do it this way. They looked at this whole thing. He is a secret informer. So this lesser used meaning of this word is probably the meaning that is meant here. Because confined to home, I don't really see where that fits. So I think secret informer is a good translation. In my opinion, it is a good translation of this word for this situation. So he comes to a place who's a secret informer. Now he identifies him as a secret informer, but he does not know at the time that he's a secret informer. But since he's writing this afterwards, he does say this was a secret informer. And so he uh, he went to the house of this guy. Now if he went to the house, Nehemiah, I ask this question, why does Nehemiah go to the house? He doesn't really tell the reason why he goes to the house. So that part's not revealed, but you have to be able to surmise that Shemaiah was trusted, loyal, and seen as beneficial for the project. He had to be trusted, loyal, and seen as beneficial for the project. Somehow, he had a benefit to this project because Nehemiah is all about the project. So if he's going into his house, he's going into his house for a reason. has to be something along the lines of the project. So somehow this guy has shown himself to be of benefit to the project. But he's a secret informer, which means he's trying to undermine the project. Do understand that there are people in this world who will pretend to be your friend, help you along the way, and still have evil intentions regarding you. So he unveils a plan to preserve Nehemiah's life as he asserts to uh, a very certain assassination attempt. And this plan that he has will stop it. There's an urgency. The urgency is used to mask the problems of the plan. I put this in your outline for you. Urgency can get us to go where we wouldn't do What we shouldn't, sense what isn't, and fear what never was. Think of it this way. Urgency can get us to go where we wouldn't. How many people would love to go into a dark cave? Most people would say no. There are some places that I probably would like to go that other people would not feel real fond about going. But if there was an urgency of a massive forest fire and the only place that you could escape it was going inside this dark cave, that urgency would probably make you go where you otherwise would not go. You're no longer thinking about, well, what if there's snakes in there? What if there's spiders in there? What if there's a a hole in there? What if I fall? You're not thinking about those things because you know out here I'm going to get burned. So the urgency can make you go some places where you otherwise wouldn't. I think in the Bible on this, uh Egypt's army went into a parted red sea. Normally I don't think they would do that. But there was an urgency to get the children of Israel. So they went. Uh do what we shouldn't. Remember Peter? I'll never deny you. And the rest of the disciples? I'll never deny you. But then suddenly there was an urgency. We may die today, right now, if we we don't deny them. That urgency caused them to do what they didn't think they would, or they knew they shouldn't. Many would have thought they would never become an idol worshiper who bowed the knee to Nebuchadnezzar's image because of the urgency that was there. You may have asked him the week before, "You think you would bow to a golden statue?" No, I would never bow to that.. Mm-mm. But then suddenly, the threat of a fiery furnace may have caused them to bow the knee. How about sense? What is it? In Second Kings chapter seven, you may remember the story where God calls the Syrian army to hear chariots and horses of a great army. There wasn't. But they heard it. They sensed it. Many times we can sense things because of an urgency. We we hear things because I feel a sense of urgency. I feel like somebody's in the house. Therefore, I begin to hear things. Second Chronicles chapter 20. There were three armies, Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir. They were allied together against Israel. But they became fearful of each other and began to kill themselves. One, Two armies rose up against one and once they finished wiping out that army, the two armies fought themselves. They became fearful of something. They came together and suddenly became fearful. This is what the enemy will try and do. To get you to feel an urgency. Whatever that urgency was that came on that army, those three kings came together. We don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us, doesn't identify It just says... Something happened to them and all of a sudden they went from a place of being unified to come against Israel to fighting themselves. Urgency can get you to go where we wouldn't do what we shouldn't sense, what isn't, and fear what never was. How can we know that we should believe a report like this? Because I'm sure you've all had people who come to you and they tell you some things. How do we know that we should believe a report like this? I don't... Uh, Nehemiah, he's not, he's not buying into this report. And it's easy to read after the fact and say, well, you know, I didn't really think that was true anyway. But it's tough when you're, when you're there and you're in the midst of it. Nehemiah is not with the king. He's been away from the king for a little while. What if this report comes? How much clout do they have? Who are they sending? What kind of evidence have they drummed up? What kind of, how's the king going to respond to this? What's he going to send back over here? There's a lot of uncertainty in this. We can have a lot of uncertainty in our own selves. You're at work and this person makes a threat. If you don't meet with me, if you don't do what I want you to do, well, I'm going to tell the boss this. I'm going to show the boss this. There can be some fear that comes on with that. So how can we know if we should believe a report like this? Well, first off, did our spirit give us warning? The enemy wants you to respond to urgency. God doesn't want you to respond to urgency. He wants you to listen to His Spirit. First off, did, this, did our Spirit give us a warning? We'll give you some examples in these things, but I just want to give you these first. Second, if not, is there at least a witness of the Spirit? When I heard that report, did a witness in my spirit, yep, that's of God. Third, is there time to seek God? Do I got time to find out what God says about this? No, 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 you don't got any time. We got to do this now. If no to all three, it is likely not from God. If your spirit didn't give you warning, if there's not at least the witness of the spirit, there's no time to seek God, man, God's probably not in this. But if your spirit gave you warning about it, well, then that urgency could be there. Here are some examples. Moses had warning from God about Israel's actions on the mountain. He's up there on the mountain and God tells him up there on the mountain. Israel is sinning. Get on down there. You need to get down there and uh, and take care of this thing. So there was an urgency but God's telling him uh, that it's right. You need to get down there and do this. David was told what Saul would do. That Saul would try and kill him. He knew this. He knew that Saul would pursue him. He knew this. Even when he made the... Uh, the efforts to show Saul, look, Saul, I got no no problem with you. I'm not trying to kill you. I've already proved it. I had opportunity. Two times, I didn't take it. David knew Saul was still going to keep coming after him. He knew it in his spirit. Elisha constantly gave warnings to the king of Israel about the plans of the enemy. In Second Kings chapter six. Did it so often the king got frustrated. Who's telling the king of Israel what we're doing? Well, nobody. They got this prophet over there. He's telling the very things that go on in your bedroom. All right, we need to get that prophet. Now, Jehoshaphat went to war with the king of Israel despite the warnings through God's prophet and was nearly killed. God sent his prophet and said, Hey, I put this all together to get Ahab and have him die in battle. And he still went to war. He was warned by God not to do it. Paul was warned by the Spirit not to go certain places. In Acts 20, we, uh, we find out that he was warned not to go into Jerusalem. Not by God, but by other people. But he went anyway. He says, people are telling me all over. Don't go, don't go. Change the weight. The Spirit tells me himself, change the weight. But apparently the Spirit never said not to go. It just said this is what's awaiting you when you do get there. So he was prepared for it. He was ready. The Spirit told him. In Acts 21, he received advice to make a vow. I've often wondered about that story. Were the people who told him to make that vow and go into the temple and do all those things, were they friends or foes? Were they trying to help Paul? Or were they trying to hurt Paul? We don't really find out. Acts 27, he's warned about the voyage on the ship. It becomes an urgent problem later because they don't listen to that. Now there's some examples too of urgency that's used to lead people down a wrong path. Joshua gave in to the urgency and made a truce with people that were in the land. He wanted to wait on this thing. Oh no, no, we gotta do this now because we've got to head back, and you know, we've been such a long way, been away from home for so long. We we need to do this now. Urgency. John the Baptist fell off from what God told him about Jesus being the Lamb, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. God told him that. He saw He saw the dove descend upon Jesus. But when he was over there in prison and facing death, there was an urgency there. It seemed to change his view. He sends out his, his uh, disciples. Go ask him if he's the one. Jesus sends back and says, tell them what you see. The blind see, the lame walk, the deaf hear. Tell them what you see. As we said, Peter and the disciples changed their stand to die for Jesus because of the urgency that they suddenly faced. We can be led by God or we can be led by urgency. On occasion, God has led with urgency. I want to tell you that anytime there's an urgency, it's not God. On occasion, God has led with urgency. Not many times. Most times, there's time to get with the program. But you remember, Joseph was told to flee to Egypt. Get up. You need to go now. There was an urgency with it. He told him to flee to Egypt. Paul had to be let down the wall in Damascus because there was an urgency They're trying to kill you. And they let them down in the basket, down the wall in Damascus. Sometimes there's an urgency. But most times there's not. Most times the urgency comes from the enemy. Let's go on verse 11 here. And I said, should such a man as I flee? And who is there such as I who would go into the temple to save his life? I will not go in. So here's the plan. We need to get you in the temple because they're coming to kill you. They're coming to kill you tonight. I know this, I've heard, I've got the report. They haven't been able to kill you the other way. They're coming tonight, they're going to kill you. You need to go into the temple and hide up and, and stay there. I'm trying to get this urgency to mask some of the problems with this. But it doesn't work for Nehemiah. So such a man as I flee. And who is there such as I who would go into the temple to save his life? I will not go in. It was wrong for him to go into the temple to hide from an enemy. He knew this. It's not ungodly to flee. But it is to do so when not directed by the Spirit. So Nehemiah sees and questions two of the premises here. First off, why should I as a man of God flee? Why do I need to run from them? Secondly, is a temple a place of hiding? Verse 12, then I perceived that God had not sent him at all but that he had pronounced this prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. For this reason he was hired, that I should be afraid and act that way and sin so that they might have cause for an evil report that they might reproach me. That's what they want. So once you encourage you to make this move, then once you make that move, ah, did you see that? Nehemiah, man of God, hiding in the temple. Is that what he's supposed to do? Is that breaking the law? And they're trying to bring him down. Then they don't have to kill anybody. They can just discredit him that way. Now he didn't perceive this before only after he questioned the advice given. He didn't know to question this man. He didn't know this man was a secret informer. He didn't know this man had been hired against him. But you see, he listened to what was said and he decided to question this. Wait a minute, let me let me take this down. What's my spirit telling me about this thing they're telling me to do? Spirit is telling me why are you going to run secondly my Spirit is telling me that is not the place I need to run to so he questioned those two things when he did more things were opened up more things became he became aware of that he was hired that he should be afraid and act the way of sin so that they might have cause for an evil report that they might reproach me then he prays in 14 my God remember Tobiah in Sanballat, according to these, their works, and the prophetess Noadiah, and the rest of the prophets who would have made me afraid. Well, I'll tell you what, there's a lot in that one little verse right there. Apparently, Shemaiah was not alone in speaking this, as there were other prophets, and even a prophetess, who spoke things, saying that they were from God. So can you imagine that this man comes, And it reveals this plot against him. Reveals this plan of how he can avoid being killed. And then prophets and prophetesses are confirming this. Thus says the Lord, you need to follow this. You need to go this way or you will die tonight. Prophets and prophetesses are coming to him, telling him this. But he goes with what's in his spirit and what he knows from the word of God. It's a hard thing for some folks to do, but it's something that we need to practice. So imagine the pressure of all these voices it might be something like what Paul felt when he was going to Jerusalem. All these prophets, all these people. "Oh, don't go. Oh, don't go up there. No, we don't want you to go. We know bad things are going to happen. To you. Don't go up there. That can't be God." I bet it was much of the same thing that Nehemiah faced back there. Nehemiah doesn't go. He doesn't hide. And they had no plan; they had no ability to put somebody in the city to kill them. So what do you do when someone like that from your past wants to receive them wants you to receive them back as a friend? They may even go in as far as say, "Hey, let us help you with what you're working on." We didn't think it was a good thing before, but yet yeah, now we're now we're on your side. Now we think this is we think this is so. How can I know their motives? But I hinder their repentance in not receiving their help. We've had people in our past. I've had people in my past. I've had religious, spiritual people in my past who pretended to be friends all the while they were doing backhanded, underhanded, divisive things. I don't tell the story often, but the church I was in, the assistant pastor at uh, my last uh, few months there, Somebody I helped to put into a place of ministry. I thought he was genuine. Actually began to work. He saw me as a threat and knew he had to get me out of the way and worked to underhand everything that I was doing so that I looked to be inefficient and unable to get things done and put down the work that I was doing. One time I came up to an office store where he was out. I was getting ready to knock on the door to ask him a question. I heard him say things on the other side of the door to, the, uh, to another person who was in leadership who had been a really close friend of mine. I heard the things that they said. I was shocked. It was hurtful. But I know the people can pass themselves off in this way. And um, it, w- it wasn't a good thing. If that person were to come back, I've told you there are some people that if they walk through the doors of that church, come on in here and sit down, I will stop the service until they leave. Those are some of those people. There is no way that you may repent, you may go on. That's fine. Go somewhere else. There's a lot of churches around. You're not coming in here. Because my number one role is to, to protect. And I'm not bringing them in. I'm not allowing them. And no one has ever tried. But if they did, we would do it. Because I know that there are people like this in the body of Christ. There are people who pass themselves off as even trying to be of of God. But even people that are not of God, they're still going to try and pretend to be on your side. If coming against you hasn't stopped you, then they're going to try and be on your side and stop you. It doesn't have to be church work. It can be other things, government work. Um, Some of the work we hear Todd and Sharon are involved with, with the school boards and things. People will come against you. They don't like all that kind of stuff going on. Let's take a look at some of the teaching here from John. In Matthew 3 and verse 4. Now John himself was clothed in camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locust and wild honey. Then Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the region around the Jordan went out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees, when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance, and do not think to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown in the fire. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor, and gather his wheat into the barn. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. He says that I'm bare fruits worthy of repentance. Repentance has certain fruit. If you don't see the fruit, then there's likely no repentance. Don't tell me that you've repented if there's no fruit. Bear fruits... That are worthy of repentance is what he, he says to them here. In verse 10, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. God lets the fruit bear witness of the genuine repentance. If God will let the fruit that people bear witness their genuine repentance, should we not follow his example? Or should we just accept repentance based on what people said? Now bearing fruit is a process. It cannot be done overnight. You don't wake up today, I'm gonna bear fruit, and then fruit comes. Trees don't bear fruit overnight. It takes a lot of years from the time that are planted to the first fruit comes. Anyone avoiding the process is likely afraid of what the process will reveal. Now look at this description from Peter. This is in 2 Peter chapter 1, 2 through 11. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. As his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue by which we have given to us exceedingly great and precious promises that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust but also for this very reason giving all diligence. Now look at this. Look at this list here. Giving all diligence. Add to your faith virtue. When when did we get our faith? When we were born again. We received faith. There was faith. There was a measure of faith that we had. Add to your faith virtue. To virtue, knowledge. To knowledge, self-control. To self-control, perseverance. To perseverance, godliness. To godliness, brotherly kindness. To brotherly kindness, love. For if if these things are yours in a pound... of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. There is a process of bearing fruit. And he lays out a process right here. You add to faith this. You add to that this. Here's the process. You keep adding the stuff and eventually you're going to bear fruit. You cannot help but be fruitful if you follow these things. I put this in your outline. I want to make sure you got this. So write this one down. Words of change. Words of change without fruits of repentance. People just want to speak to you. I've changed. I've changed. Words of change without fruits of repentance is merely camouflage. Words of change without fruits of repentance is merely camouflage. People will camouflage their lack of repentance with their words of change. But God has a process. Satan wants to sidestep the process and will use urgency, guilt, compassion, and any other feeling he can get you to drop out of looking for the process, looking for the fruit. Follow God. Don't be afraid to expect those who would follow Him to be held to God's standard of fruit production. If God is going to hold people to a standard of producing fruits of repentance, then why shouldn't we? If the tree hasn't borne the fruit of an apple, it may not be an apple tree. Or, it may just not be a good one. What does God do with apple trees that are not good? Cuts them down. Throws them in the fire. God wants both. Trees that are of Him and trees that are good. If you trust the words of a false tree, or one that is not good, you will get burned. Bearing fruit is a process. Anyone who wants to avoid the process is simply not bearing fruit. There are no fruits of repentance. And if there are no fruits of repentance, you are not standing in their way of repenting. The enemy will try and get you to think that. This doesn't mean we trust no one. That's the pit on the other side of the road. Don't trust anyone. It's just me. That's it. God doesn't remove unfruitful trees from the field. He gives them the opportunity to follow the process. Bad trees won't want to. And will expect you to shortcut them in. Now here's an example in this one. You may like this one. How many of you have a light somewhere around your home that has a long left-hand turn lane? We were out there and I were Rashawn, we're going down to the airport and we're going to this one spot it has a long right-hand right hand turn lane coming off the 76 long right hand turn lane and we got in the long part of the line but other people are zipping on by zipping on by they're going to cut in front they have determined that their urgency is greater than ours what do you think about those people how do you feel about that one going on by cutting cutting in the line ahead of you. How many of you feel like when I get there, I'm not letting any of them in? And then repent because you think that's unchristian. What if I told you you don't have to repent? Think it's unfair they deem their situation to be more urgent than anyone else's. What happens when people let them in? And the people who are doing it right get pushed back further. What do we teach people? What do we teach people if we let them in line? To do it again take the shortcut again, that it worked. I saved 10 minutes off of my drive time by cutting in front of everybody else. I'm going to do it again tomorrow. And they do it on a regular basis. What would happen if they didn't get anyone who would let them in? They would probably learn to not do it that way. So what do we teach people who say they repent and it's okay to cut in line and avoid the process? Will that please God? No, there's a process. There's a fruit-bearing process. Did Jesus hinder the repentance of the rich young ruler? No. He simply exposed what hindered him. Money had a hold of him. He exposed what hindered him. If God warns us that not all people who claim to repent of their past acts against us are genuine. If he's mourning us if He gives us stories in the Word that shows us that not everybody who says they have repented of their past acts against God, against us, are genuine and even say such things to get an opportunity against us, would it not be foolish for us not to listen to the warnings that God has given us? It would be foolish. If God has warned us that there are people out there who will sidestep the process to try and cut in line and they will hurt you. And we don't listen. We're setting ourselves up. There is a process to repentance. You do no one any favors by shortcutting it. There's fruits that they need to say. The show. Doesn't mean that you don't trust anyone. We're talking about people you have a history with. You meet somebody on the street. Listen to your spirit. You got a good spirit. got a good feeling. You got a bad feeling. Now sometimes your flesh can get in the way, and you get a bad feeling from your flesh. You got to be get over that, because God wants to, wants you to trust. We need to trust people. We need to find the good in people. That's what the Word of God teaches us. To find the good in people. But these are people that have already exposed themselves as being evil, being bad, being hurtful. Now they say, now I want to repent. I want to. I, I really. All right. Let's go through the process. You need to show fruits. There needs to be fruits of that. When people like these, these folks in this chapter demand, no, you will do what we say. That's not fruits of repentance. It's not there. They will expose themselves. It will come out. It is amazing to me how much darkness will expose themselves. I'll bet you Satan himself gets frustrated how quickly people of darkness fold and expose their evil intentions. It's kind of like that movie, A Few Good Men. We're going to get this guy to expose the evil that he was doing. And they did. They did. They coaxed him into it, and he said, Yeah, I ordered the thing. Evil, it just seems like it wants to brag on the things that it's doing. And if you give it opportunity, it will come out. Listen to your spirit on this thing. Just because an enemy says they want to re- re- repent and return and make nice does not mean it's genuine and it does not mean that you should. They have, alright, let's, let's get to a place where we can see some of the fruits come out. Because if they're a good tree, you're going to see the fruit. fruit of the Spirit will come out of them. You're going to see the patience. You're going to see the love. You're going to see all these things come out on them. You're going to see the joy. Those are genuine fruits. Wait to see the genuine fruit come out on their tree. When you see that, I know that they're genuine. They may not have all the doctrine right. They may not have all the P's and Q's right, but you know what? That's a genuine tree right there. They're showing some fruit. The people that are evil, they don't have the fruit. They don't have the fruits. If they truly repented and the Spirit of God is on the inside of them and the Spirit of God is going to bring them to a place where the fruit of the Spirit will be evident in their life. They're not willing for that to come out. They're not willing to take the time. More than likely, they're afraid of what will be exposed. Because it will come out. The light will expose the darkness. In the Word of God we see these words quite often end suddenly. Sudden changes. Sudden changes should always be taken with caution. If your enemy suddenly changes. Take it with caution. Let me give you a poster child for this. Paul came to Damascus breathing threats against the church and had the Damascus Road experience, and he had a sudden change. He came back in and he told people he's changed. How many people wanted to believe him? Not a whole lot. They were very suspicious of this. Wait a minute, you had a sudden change? But look at how Paul conducted himself. He was willing for the fruit to show. He never insisted anybody do anything, put him in any place. In fact, he even withdrew himself from, from everybody for a while because he knew the fruit would come out. People that are genuine don't mind some time to let that fruit come out. People that are not, there will be an urgency much like it is here. Father, we thank you for examples like Nehemiah that we can learn from. Just because people say they have our good intentions, our good, our well-being in mind does not mean that they do. You have shown us many times in many places in Scripture that not everyone who says they are on our side is actually on our side. But you didn't teach us that for us to distrust all the people that are around us That's the pitfall the enemy wants to bring us into. But you showed us how we can determine and how we can know. And I thank you for the way that you've done that in your word. We give you the praise and the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.